So, are we uh, ready? Yes. Very right, good. Mm. Homage to the Blessed One. Mary, Mary Grace and I were talking earlier about the heat and came up with a new idea. Maybe it's even a moneymaker. It could be called Bikram Vipassana. <laughs> Bikram Qigong. Pretty hot. It's been hot in more ways than one. We sometimes have metaphors of our sitting practice akin to being in a cooker and getting cooked. And sometimes it's a simmer, sometimes it's a boil. When I lived in the monastery, a friend of mine and myself, we used to call it was like living inside a shit accelerator. (laughs) Because on the outside it looked really peaceful, but on the inside, lots going on in the mind, lots of material arising. So that was our beloved name for our times there because it was a real cooker. Tonight, it is indeed, I was happy to hear Marcy's uh, announcement. I was also going to mention this is the High Holy Day of the Jews, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur means the Day of Atonement. I grew up a Jew, and it was a day that I knew that um, I was not going to eat for the day, so I ate very well the night before. And I was going to spend most of the day in temple. And my understanding was I was going to be praying about forgiveness and atonement of anything that I did not so skillful in the year before. And that celebration after the day is passed in the early evening, tomorrow night it will be for many Jews, it will be the time to celebrate, to renew, to be restored, to have forgiven, and to move on. That's pretty good, isn't it? That is really a beautiful thing. When I was a bhikkhu, a monk, a Buddhist monk, there was a wonderful tradition that we did every day. And this is when I was in Burma. And it was called Dethana Charme. And a younger monk would always squat down next to a monk that has more years than you've done. And we would do this once a day. Everyone in the community would find someone to squat with, and they would do. We would do a confession for any of. Um, the, the, and a monk, a Buddhist monk, keeps about two hundred and twenty-seven precepts, but there's actually even more than that. And so, if there's anything that we've done unskillfully during the day, this is the time to own it and to make amends and to say that I'm going to try harder in the future. And it was a very cleansing ceremony. I loved doing that every day. Sitting with some elder and just acknowledging perhaps ways that I have been unskillful and in this ceremony and ritual to to recommit to living skillfully. 
I actually really miss that. And maybe there's a way that I can find a, a friend, an elder, that I can adopt that with. Maybe we could try that. There's a certain beauty when we're living virtuously. And when I had ordained, never forget that day. It was in November in 1980, and it's around sunset. And I had just been ordained as a monk in Burma. And I walked into a forest grove filled with the loudest crows you could ever imagine. It seemed like there was thousands of them there, and they were squawking and squawking. And I just broke down into tears of tears and tears and tears of joy. I had felt that I had done something that was so good for me. I really experienced and tasted. When you do something good, you just, you just love that feeling inside you. The richness of living a virtuous life, living in harmony. There's a lot of wisdom where we can understand in the teachings of the Buddha that the foundation of all wisdom comes with the virtue We talked about the precepts on the first night, which is really about living without harm, with safety, with virtue, with kindness. It's great virtues in living well. And I made some reference about the monastery living in a shit accelerator, and perhaps here at Spirit Rock, you know, we see the ostriches, and the, the, the geese were flying overhead tonight, and... The deer, it's very idyllic, very beautiful. Ah, Spirit Rock, what a beautiful place. But then you come in here, and it's hot, and all your stuff is coming up, and it's like, wait a minute. Hafiz, the wild man, wise Persian poet, says, not many teachers in the world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. That would do. And that means not leaving. You better get a friend to help you with sandwiches and you better get a chamber pot. And no reading in there or writing poems. Let's aim for a 360 degree detox. This sitting alone though is not recommended if you're normally sedated or have been under a doctor's surveillance because of your brain. Dearland... Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried in here. When we begin to sit, we begin to see the transparency of our mind. Sometimes I feel akin to meditation. If we're really honest and really sincere, it's like walking into a hall of mirrors starring me. Everywhere I turn, it's me. And sometimes what we see is not so easy. And Bhante Gunaratama, he writes that somewhere in the process of meditation, you'll come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) That your mind is a shrinking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. 
It's always been this way, but perhaps you just haven't noticed. It's part of our practice in meditation, in some ways, is like taking a plunge into ourselves. And I just want to acknowledge all of you and what a plunge you've all taken. It's not easy sitting here, being with the heat and being with ourselves. Not easy at all. I may have mentioned earlier that you know I do feel, honestly, that this is the most noblest of works and it is sometimes the most arduous and difficult of works. But in a sense, what fuels and drives us to be here is our own suffering, our own sense of wanting to understand the mysteries of life. What is this life? And it's wonderful to recognize that there is a perennial wisdom in the world and many different spiritual traditions about this journey inside of ourselves. St. Isaac of Nineveh, who lived in the 6th century in Iraq, he's a Christian mystic, he says, be at peace, and then heaven and, heaven and earth will be at peace with you. Enter into the treasure house that is within you, and you'll see the things that are in heaven. There's one single entry. The ladder that leads to the kingdom is hidden in you. So dive into yourself. There you will discover the stairs by which to ascend this quality of diving into ourselves. When we begin to dive into ourselves, we begin to see at times the lenses, the filters of how we see things. And Mary Grace, of course, talked a lot about that last night, the different stories that we spin, the constructions. I was at Dharma's restaurant in Santa Cruz a couple days ago, and Bernie, the the owner, I was ordering food, and He's saying, Bob, how you doing? He goes, oh, you know, it's the Bob show with all its constructions. He, I know that he was a Dharma practitioner, but I don't think he quite heard what I said. He goes, oh, you, you having a construction project going on? I said, no, 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 Bernie, I'm talking about the constructions of the Bob show. Then he got a big laugh. Oh, yeah. These constructions that we live with, It's very interesting is when you begin to develop an awareness that can begin to see the construction. And that who's that awareness? I don't want to enter into a mad house of mirrors here, but there's a place where perhaps we can begin to take a step back and observe, oh, here's the story. And that one that knows the story is in that moment free of the story. But stories we have and they cannot be negated and unacknowledged, pushed away, disassociated. In many ways, and also in many of the spiritual traditions, the perennial wisdom of the journey inwards, into ourselves. If we, we, if you will, want to transform our ego, we need to know our ego. This narcissistic creation. So there's a wisdom about turning into our pain and our fears. And in the interviews, you know, I've been talking with so many people 
There's so much I know that we're holding and dealing with in our lives. It's huge. How do we work with this? When I was uh, 16 years old, I grew up outside of the Boston area. I got my car license and was driving my mom and dad's 1964 Ford Galaxy. And, of course, in Boston gets winter, and I'd be driving in the snow, and being a very inexperienced driver, I would often get caught in skids. And whenever I got into a skid, I just, like, tried to turn away from that thing because it was scary. And I noticed, of course, that as I turned away, I just kept on skidding more. And one time I was telling my dad about this, and my dad said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn into it. And I thought that was crazy. The reason that I thought that was crazy, well, I was 16, I was a teenager, you know, I know everything. But it felt counterintuitive to me. It felt like, turn in the direction that I want to get away from, I was scared. And so I didn't believe him and didn't try it, and the winter bore on, and there were more skids and more spinouts. Until one day came when I was spinning and I remembered what my father said and it felt like I had exhausted every other alternative of trying to get away from the skid, but I kept on skidding. And I decided, okay, let's see. And I remember just slightly beginning to turn my wheel in towards the skid. It felt counterintuitive, it felt scary, but I felt I had nothing else to lose at that point. And lo and behold, it was a revelation. My car began to straighten out. That was like amazing to me in so many ways. Much more than the car straightening out, it was giving me a teaching about learning to turn into my own fears. That I thought that the only way when I have fears coming at me is to run away and to get away from them. There's an old Grateful Dead song that says, You can run though, but you can never hide. It seems to come back. So this was a powerful teaching, turning into the skid. It became a powerful metaphor in my life of learning how to turn into those places. Rumi sometimes talked about, don't cover up the bandage place, for that's where the light enters. So as we sit in our practice, we begin to see our wounded places. And our impulse at times is to, oh, not that, let's push that away. Ooh, not that feeling. And we are beginning slowly in our practice to meet these feelings. We begin to see perhaps they are precursors. There was a pleasant feeling and it led to a whole thing here, or an unpleasant feeling. But we're learning how to turn into what's here, beginning to acknowledge what has not been acknowledged. Rilke writes very beautifully, We have no reason to harbor any mistrust against our world for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And only if we could arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. 
How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about the dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. And of course, our friend Rumi, in that classic poem, The Guest House, I trust a number of you have heard, it's such a radical invitation. He's suggesting for us. He says that this being human is a guest house in every moment that can be a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness, a momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house and empty all of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. It may be clearing you out for some new delights. The dark thoughts, the shame, the malice. Meeting them at the door, laughing, and invite them in. And be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. It's a very radical way of beginning to work with what comes up inside us. This invitation like a guest house. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows. That feels pretty radical to me. For most of us, we want to turn away from it. It is scary to turn into what's here. And perhaps if we could develop a way to utilize what's here as material for our own growth and discovery, this may be something special. But it is normal when we are meditating, when we begin to bring our awareness to what's here, particularly if it's our top 40 that we don't want to experience and see and feel and acknowledge, that it can feel uncomfortable. And so that's really important to know as far as it being part of the terrain, that when we bring our light of awareness to what is perhaps uncomfortable and begin to meet it and acknowledge it, it may even have an experience that it feels like it amplifies or gets a little bigger. It's good to know that might be part of the course but if we hang out there longer, perhaps other things will happen. Francis Fenelon, a Christian monk in the Middle Ages, has a beautiful quote in the Exum Middle Age uh, descriptive language here that I trust you'll appreciate. He says that when the light of awareness increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. <laughs> We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we'd harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. And while our faults diminish, the lights by which we see them waxes brighter, we could be filled with horror. But please 
bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Very beautiful. We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. In Payment Children, she writes, generally speaking, we would disregard discomfort, or we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. Yeah, that seems about right. Any discomfort is bad news. But for practitioners or spiritual warriors, people who have a certain hunger to know what's true, feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, fear, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments that are teaching us where it is that we're holding back. They teach us to perk up and lean in when we feel we'd rather collapse and back away. They're like messengers that show us with terrifying clarity exactly where it is that we are stuck. This moment is the perfect teacher, and lucky for us, it's with us wherever we are. That's an interesting way of being able to hold what's arising within us. What if everything that arose within us is part of our practice to grow and to learn? That even the darkness, the shame, the fear can be part of the manure, if you will, the part of the grist of the mill of, to help us with our awakening. Stephen Levine would call these blessings that have just come in drag. They're unrecognized. They appear, and actually in a lot of the Tibetan imagery, you see these like demonic-looking you know, figures and they're, they're actually manifestations of compa- different images. That, and, and so we have to go through these images to find our hearts. That perhaps deep inside our fear, our pain, our heart is waiting for us there. Part of this journey is our willingness to deal with our own perceptions of how we see things. And we can get very stuck sitting in our pillow here in our zafu. This is my space, and I'm looking at the room in this way, and this is just how it is, right? And God forbid someone should sit on my zafu. But if we all got up right now, and I won't make you do that, but if we all just exchanged zafus, went all over the room, and all of a sudden you would see this room in a different perspective. We think that we're only seeing it in this perspective, and this is how it is. But there's actually about 35 different perspectives here and more. But we don't see that because we get very stuck in how we see things. So part of our practice in mindfulness is our willingness to be open. Let's be here now. There's a very funny story about perception. It's called the cookie thief. There was a woman waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. And she hunted for a book in the airport shop and bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She munched cookies and watched the clock as this gussy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too, 
And when there was only one left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. (laughs) He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, Oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and she sighed with relief when her flight was called and she gathered her belongings for the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat and then sought her book, which was almost complete, And as she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise, for there was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes, and if mine are here, she moaned now with despair. Then the others were his, and he tried to share. (laughs) Too late to apologize. She realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. You never know. Seeing things differently, going outside of the box. A friend of mine once told a story of a World War II pilot that was on an enemy mission, and while he was out in enemy territory, some machine gun fire put a few holes in the hydraulic fluid reservoir. And the pilot, you know, got out of that area and was heading back towards the base and the airport. And he was really in trouble because the hydraulic fluid um, controlled the landing gear and he couldn't get it down because the fluid was gone. And the gas gauge is going down and down and he's circling around, starting to really freak out. And then he realized, wait a minute, this is not solving anything. What am I going to do? I know there's no, there's no hydraulic fluid on the plane. What am I going to do? There's no fluid on the plane. And he just kind of paused, took a breath. And then all of a sudden, he thought of something. And he called the soldiers together. And he had them all plug up the bullet holes with tape or uniforms, whatever material they had. And then he asked them to all urinate into the hydraulic fluid reservoir. Now, if you consulted an aeronautical manual, urine is not the designated fluid. Hydraulic oil fluid is, but there wasn't any. And believe it or not, there was enough urine to fill up that reservoir, and they were able to get the landing gear down, and they got the plane down. And it's a marvelous story of going outside of the box. And so I just bring up this whole thing of perception, because sometimes we get so stuck on our cushion, seeing it just this way, and it's only this way, and there may be countless other possibilities that we're not yet aware of. Now, many years ago, I was telling this story because a friend of mine had told me this. He read it in a World War II history book. And I was telling the story at the Santa Cruz Medical Foundation in a mindfulness stress reduction class. And at the end of the class, one of, um, one of my friends, who's an elderly man, um, he was taking the class. I was good friends with his daughter, Frank's his name, and Frank comes up at the end of class and goes, Bob, I can't believe you told that story. And I said, yeah, Frank, do you know anything about it? And then he started laughing hysterically. Do I know anything about it? I was the pilot of that plane. Now talk about a needle in the cosmic haystack of the universe. What would be the possibilities that that would actually happen? 
pretty strange. And then he went on to say there's more to the story. <laughs> and he went on to say that the hydraulic fluid reservoir also controlled the brakes. And that all he knew is he could get one punch down on the brakes. The urine was going to go flying all over everywhere, but how am I going to stop this plane? And again, he had another crisis. Then he finally figured it out. He had all the soldiers open up the windows, doors, break windows, open up every single parachute they had on the plane, and they got that plane to stop. So there is possibilities of seeing things differently if we're open to it. And the, the wonderful news about this practice is that you don't have to know what it is that you're going to see different yet. All you have to do is be open to the possibility of seeing different, and who knows. Or you can go the other way and not see. Now, cows in the pasture, they stay in the pasture. They're very strong animals, but farmers like to go put up electric fences around the corral. And when a cow bounces into the, the electric fence, it gets a shock. And after a while, it begins to learn, don't go near there, it gets a shock. And then farmers get very clever. After they see the cows aren't going there anymore, they shut off the power. They want to save electricity. The only thing that's keeping them in there is their mind. And we can be like that at times, being constricted by how we see things. An old story of a physical therapist that one time had a patient that had a, some knee problem and had a really poor walking pattern. And after some time of uh, physical therapy appointments, the person could walk fine. And one day they broke for lunch and the therapist went down just a few minutes later to go get lunch as well and happened to look across the street and the patient was walking kind of all ziggity-jaggedy the way the person was some months ago. And the patient came back later next time and the therapist asked him, what's going on? You've been walking fine and, and then I saw you the other day. You were just limping all again. It was right after I saw you. And the patient said, oh, I was walking with one of my friends and you know, no one in my family would recognize me any other way. That's just kind of how it is. So sometimes we can get stuck in our patterns of how we do things. Part of our practice of mindfulness is to begin to recognize the patterns. The patterns are difficult to break. The patterns are difficult even to see, before, never mind breaking. In our practice of mindfulness, we can begin to recognize the patterns. And Viktor Frankl has this beautiful quote that says, between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. And in that space lies our freedom. And sometimes we don't see the spaces between our choices. we reacting impulsively. With mindfulness, it offers potentially a new beginning. Mindfulness is akin to turning on the light in a room that was dark and that I can't. So if we had all the lights off in this room, it might be difficult to find our way out the door. But when we turn on the light, we could see clearly, oh, here's a story. Oh, I'm trapped by my own thoughts right now, and that moment of seeing it offers some possibility of something else. There's kind of a funny poem, autobiography, in five short chapters, and it says, chapter one, I'm walking down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I fall in, I'm helpless, it takes a long time, but I finally get out. In chapter two, I'm walking down that same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I fall in again, and I see where I am, I get out very quickly. In chapter 3, I'm walking down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in again. It's a habit. You know, this is kind of what I do. And we can live in chapter 3 for a while. 
But if we become mindful, chapter 4, walking down the street, deep hole in the sidewalk, I walk around the hole. Chapter 5, I can walk down another street. The potentials of making changes when we become mindful. So when we become mindful, we begin to see what's arising within us. And the importance of this sense of transparent honesty with our experience to be acknowledged. It's a very powerful quote from Jesus that says, if you say what's within you, what you say within you will save you. If you don't say what's within you, what you don't say can destroy you. It's a very powerful quote of the importance of being able to begin to acknowledge what is within us and its healing possibilities. There's a mythological tribe in the South Pacific in the Polynesia culture called the Mori tribe. And Christine Hubbard has also did some research there as well. But part of this, uh, there's a myth that within this village in the Mori culture, there's no physicians, no healers, no shamans. And when asked about how do the people heal themselves, the elders in the village said it's, it's simple. It's something we have done for generations. And what we do is we, we come together in the village with the elders and the community. And the person that's ill or having troubles, we ask them to sit in the middle of a circle and we do a circle around them. And then someone asks them, what has been left unsaid? What has been left unsaid? And then they wait, and they listen, until all that has been unsaid becomes said. And they say that the cure rate is 98%. Now, perhaps that's more of a metaphor, but there is great power in being able to acknowledge, acknowledge what has been left unsaid. Great powers of truth. Mary Grace last night was talking about Angulimala. He's the guy with the, the garland of fingers. And there was something she was saying about, oh, and something about him and childbirth. And, and we talked about it again last night. And one of the stories about how does this murderer help babies get born into the world? Because monks and nuns often chant the Angulimala Sutta to anyone that is pregnant. But the history behind this is, is that when Angulimala ran into this woman that was in major labor and she was calling out for help and he was, you know, and he said, well, I don't know what to do. And, and so he ran back to the Buddha, like, what do I do? What do I do? This woman wants to help. And the Buddha said, what you need to do is go, go back and tell her something that's true. And so he's running back and he's running back. What's true? What's true? I've been a murderer. What's true? What? I've been a murderer. What's true? And then all of a sudden he realized since he's been wearing robes of his noble birth, he has not harmed any living being. And he uttered to her, by the power of the truth that I have not hurt any living being, may this baby come out healthy. May you be healthy. And repeated this three times, and the baby came out healthy, and the mother was fine. And so there's actually a rich tradition in the Buddhist literature about performing the acts of truth. And the power of truth can heal. 
And so even in our, in our own lives and in our own practices, being able to begin to acknowledge what's within us that hasn't been acknowledged, to allow ourselves to feel what we haven't felt and to name what hasn't been named can have a very powerful healing effect. Of course, we also want to remember that may it be infused with self-compassion, of course. But we begin to look at our minds. What are we feeding here? George Bernard Shaw speaks about uh, two dogs. One was mean and one was sweet, and the mean one's picking fights with the sweet one a lot. And someone asked the owner of the dogs, well, which dog usually wins the fight? And the owner said, it depends on which one I feed. So what are we feeding here? And this practice of mindfulness involves inquiry, investigation, which is actually one of seven factors of enlightenment. Other factors, mindfulness, effort, rapture, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. This quality of investigation is such a powerful quality, the inquiry, investigation into the causes of our own suffering, pain, our own reactivity. And when things come up, that's always an indicator that something is there. And I like it akin to you driving in your car and on your dashboard there's a little warning light. It says brakes. That's a good indicator. It's letting you know something's going on, but the truth is the problem ain't on the light. It's wired down and wires to something much deeper. And part of our practice in investigation and being present to what's here is our own ability that when something comes up that's difficult or painful, that we begin to meet it with awareness, begin to acknowledge it. And gradually we may begin to discover what's inside it and what's fueling it by our own ability to stay present and be with things as they are. Not easy. So I like sometimes to make a distinction in the practice of the word acknowledgement and acceptance. As far as a practical application of practice. When difficult feelings arise, a practice can invite us to acknowledge what's present. And that's different from the word accepting. If we use the word acceptance to mean that I should be okay with this. I should be at peace with this. I'm trying to tell myself to be all right with this. Where the truth is, it may not be in our experience. So we find as an ally, it's very helpful to meet our awareness with what's there by this acknowledging what's present. It's not an analyzing, it's not a figuring out, but it's an acknowledging of what's so. And ultimately, of course, in our practice of Vipassana, we begin to see that all of these formations of what's so, they come and go. Maybe even in this retreat, you've just seen so many things going on. Sometimes we call, we can develop the Vipassana Vendetta. Somebody's not going in the line fast enough in the dining room. Someone's ticking us off. The guy up front's coughing too much. We can have a Vipassana Vendetta. Maybe I'm having a Vipassana romance. I haven't even, even had a conversation with this person, but I'm already in love. I'm going to have children with them. <laughs> Things arise. We experience at times difficult people. 
in our lives. In the few minutes I have left, I want to talk about working with difficult people. Difficult situations. And for me, one of the most important ways that I begin to work with a difficult situation is to reflect upon how I feel when I'm feeling this place inside me of resentment, grudges, ill will. It's a very powerful practice to begin to recognize how does, yes, I'm projecting outwards, this person is difficult, but how am I feeling inside myself? So I'm first one to bring that quality of investigation into how am I feeling? And I may begin to discover that I'm not feeling so good about this. That feels like I might have a rock in my shoe or a thorn in my side. So one of the first practices in reconciliation is to begin to work with how it is that we're working inside ourselves. And is there a way that we can begin to inwardly begin to neutralize this harboring of ill will or resentment or grudges? It's really toxic. I could almost say even like poisonous to my own welfare and well-being. Another aspect that I want to say that I think has been very helpful for me is the understanding of what usually motivates one to do acts that cause harm. And the truth and the humble truth here, here is who is free from having given harm to another. I trust that we all can own up to that. And if we look very closely at our own motivators, we can often recognize that what fueled that was our own fear and our own unawareness. This is really important to understand. Norman Fisher, who um, is a Zen poet and priest, he wrote a very interesting Buddhist translation of the book of Psalms. And in a lot of the archaic biblical language, there's a lot of References to people being wicked, unrighteous, evil. And he changed all those words to that they were being heedless. Heedless meaning being unmindful, unaware. Kind of changes the context a bit. And so it's a very powerful practice to begin to recognize that often what fuels our unskillful actions is, number one, our unawareness and often associated with some types of fear or grasping, clinging, which, of course, has its roots in fears. So many of us live with a sense of self-loathing, unworthiness, inadequacy. Tara Brock calls it the trance of inadequacy or unworthiness. We can get entranced in that way. Part of our deepest healings in our work here is to begin to heal ourselves of these conversations that perhaps we have with ourselves and perhaps that we would never tell, call our friend the, what we call ourselves. We wouldn't have any friends if we treated our friends at times like the way that we treat ourselves. It's important for us to understand reconciliation and that it begins perhaps in your seat 
in this moment as we hear these words. And I feel it is a real truth to say that all of our lives has led us into this moment with me talking with you right now. How could it not have? Here you are. This is it. Here we are. And from that vantage point, everything that we have done in our past has led us into this moment. And of course, when we look into that past, we might say, well, you know, some of it's good, but you know, we have a whole story about all that's not good. And, and I trust that you know, we all have had challenges. Part of this reconciliation is the recognition that all of this past has led me into this moment. And may I open into a place of self-compassion, reconciliation. Derek Walcott speaks of a very beautiful poem about this. It's called Love After Love. And it goes, The time will come when with elation you'll greet yourself arriving at your own door and in your own mirror. And each will smile at the other's welcome. And you'll love again the stranger who is yourself. You'll give wine and bread and you'll give back your heart to the stranger who's loved you whom all your life you've ignored for another. Taking down the photographs and the desperate notes and peeling your image from the mirror and you'll sit and you'll feast on your life. The time will come and with elation you'll greet yourself arriving at your own door and mirror You'll love again the stranger who is yourself. The pathway towards greater healing, opening into our hearts with self-compassion. And there's times when we don't feel that way, and yet this practice is asking us to labor into that. And Mary mentioned the other night, and I like it, like if even though you have your worst enemy in the world after sending love to them, even though you don't mean it for about 10 million times, there might all of a sudden come a time where, yeah, yeah, the possibilities. How can we transform our difficult ones into a possibility? Ram Dass once said that he puts on his altar like Nixon and all these other characters. And he says, the day that I can see them all to be God, then I know I'm enlightened. Until then, I know I have some work to do. (laughs) So we can put on our altar whoever our formidable, formidable challenges. But we also understand that even those that have perhaps hurt us, it's been fueled by their unawareness and their fear. That insight, that understanding, the understanding of our own grudges that causes us to suffer can begin to lessen. So let's just sit for a few minutes in the evening of Yom Kippur.
This is from Un. This is called Unconditional by Jennifer Payne Wellwood. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives inside. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I welcome pursues me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. May we all be at peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.